Morning, church. You adulterous people. (laughs) Welcome. It's God's word, not mine. (sighs) Do you not know that relationship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, God, before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Thank you to Natasha for reading that and saving my throat for a few moments. Just get my thing sorted. Good morning, church. It's good to be here. Um, I'm glad we're all friends here today, as it means I can start with some honesty, as the truth is, I'm pretty terrified right now. There's a lot of you out there. But um, I'm certainly not into putting on a front, and I wanted to start with that. Um, Many speakers come up and start with, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I was entertained as Adrian bounded to the stage last week and said, I've been so excited about this morning. And it's in all truth I can say, I have not been looking forward to this morning. And my feelings are somewhat closer to horror than to pleasure. (laughs) I I do, however, feel that God has called me to take this step as an important part of the story that he has for my life and an important part of the story he has for our church. I think you'll pick up the clear thread that God has threaded through this morning already. But as um, Graham said, I'll be continuing our series on the book of James, which, as all our previous speakers have mentioned, is not an easy book to preach on. And I'm glad that the start of that passage got a laugh, because it is almost the reaction I had when I first read through and thought, I've got to speak on this. What, God? Um, But yeah, in all honesty, I've been massively challenged by the words found within it, and I hope that I'm able to communicate some of that to you clearly this morning. But James is a very practical book. And in many ways, and in large parts, focuses on the absolute necessity of true faith being expressed as works and through acts of service to God. In chapter 2 and verse 22, it says this. It says, it refers to the familiar account of Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar. And it says, you see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And my hope and my prayer is that as I speak this morning, the very action itself of me standing here today, working out my faith in God and submitting to him in this moment, will speak clearly along with the word of God as we look at the subject of submitting your life to God. Thank you again, Natasha, for the reading, and it definitely saved my throat for a bit. We're going to focus on a few key verses from that chapter today as well as um, I'm going to share a bit of my own story 
and most importantly, we're going to draw our eyes onto Jesus, the one perfect example of total submission to God and the one who says to us, I am the way. I've titled my talk today, I'm all in, which perhaps has its origins in the game of poker, which we don't want to focus on, but has now been widely adopted and has become used in many other scenarios. I don't know how many tennis geeks or sports fans there are in the room, but four weeks ago, tennis fans across the world watched as Roger Federer, the man on the screen, played his very last professional tennis match in an event called the Labour Cup. It was the end of an incredible career, one of huge competitive success and many unmatched achievements. He was a player who made one of the most physical, gruelling, tough sports look something more like a work of art. He was an amazing man but he was a man who gave it his everything. His time, his attention, his focus, his diet, and his relationships were all orientated around the game of tennis. On the next slide, these pictures show in a somewhat comical but very moving manner um, just the pain that he experienced in his um, career reaching its close. He was all in. He completely submitted his life to being the best tennis player that he could be. And in the eyes of many, he will be remembered as the greatest ever. It became the story of his life. There are many things in life in which we can come to expect this mindset. Perhaps for us, it might be a relationship. When you're so in love with someone, then you almost can't imagine being without them. Perhaps it could be a career or a job that seems to offer you everything you ever hoped for. Perhaps for me, the birth of a child when this little bundle of joy is just, you, you can't believe the depths of love and concern that you, you feel for them, and it's totally indescribable. But these things bring us to a point at which everything else changes. Every other aspect of your life is restructured around them. They command your time, your effort, your money, your attention, and your devotion. They're things to which we say, I'm all in, and they become integral parts of our story. The Bible, too, teaches that God has a story and a plan for each one of us here today. In Psalm 139, it's going to be on the screen, it says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And James puts it before us. Um, in this chapter, that if we want to join with the story that God has written over our lives, above all else, I'm all in, must be our position before God alone. We've heard in previous weeks of perhaps you could say the lofty expectations um, that the book of James teaches are expected of us. But how is it that we reach them? How do we attain the ability to persevere through the trials that will come our way, as Nick talked about? How do we live lives that join with the heart of God in administering justice to the poor and to the weak? And how do we bring under our control the tongue that James calls a restless evil full of deadly poison? Well, today's passage, again, it doesn't get much easier as we heard. And it starts in the particularly stark manner that we've become accustomed to in the book of James. He outlines the spiritual reality that all of us as humans are born into. We have one choice to make, and it is above all else in importance. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world 
becomes an enemy of God. The choice is between friendship with the world or friendship with God. And it is made plainly clear that they cannot go hand in hand. They are mutually exclusive. The question posed by James is, who are you with? What voice are you listening to? To what are you giving your attention? And from what are you seeking your satisfaction, your pleasure and your identity? Is it from God or is it from the world? And as verse 7 puts it, the voice of the devil. It seems particularly in our culture today that the pull of the world is perhaps as strong as ever. There are a dizzying array of options that seem to promise to give us that lasting satisfaction and happiness that we all desire. But most of these boil down to pride and accumulation of wealth. And indeed, it can seem that almost any long, lengthy conversation we have, whether outside or within the church, can currently be dragged towards mortgage repayments, utility bill rises, pension plans, financial security, and how you want to give your kids a good start to repeat that same cycle over and over again. James's take on this is tough, but it is that this cannot be. If our minds and conversations are settling in the same place as those outside the church, we cannot be living the radically different lives of self-sacrifice and faith that he has truly called us to. Francis Chan puts it like this in his book, Crazy Love. Something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. And in verse 7, it says, um, yeah, James gives us the ultimate answer and says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's concise, but it's at the root of everything that the Christian walk requires. So just a small topic for us to look at today. He does give us an all-important starting point, though, as we read on in the chapter, which can't be missed and must be returned to throughout our Christian walk. And actually, if you want some extra encouragement of how incredible our God is, as I sat down for my devotion this morning, the verse that was listed in this little Steve Apple book was James 4, verse 8. And it reads this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Not hiding from the fact that these words are hard and they are sobering. And perhaps they're not verses that are likely to make their way onto inspiring Instagram posts or Facebook stories. I probably got that the the wrong way around. But um, in honesty, they are a section of the passage that I casually wrote off as I was preparing. I read it and thought, that's too hard. I can't preach on that, God. It's ridiculous. But it's what it says. And James is clear that to get to this point of total submission to God, we must begin with experiences of deep intimacy with God that we must seek out that genuine personal encounter of his overwhelming presence in our lives and complete infilling of his Holy Spirit. As we draw near to God, he will draw near to us and we will experience a glimpse of his glory, a momentary sense of his perfect love. Out of that place will come a conviction of the weight of our sin, a realisation that our hearts have been divided between the world and the things of God, we come to a place of helpless surrender to his sovereignty and confession that we are nothing without him. The starting point 
to submission to God is total humility before him, realizing that everything we are was created by him. Every moment of our life, every breath that we take is upheld by his word alone. I love this quote that I came across by an author called Andrew Murray in a book called Humility. It says this, Here is the path to the higher life. Down, lower, down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. And while the message of James and the Bible is really clear on this, how often do we come to this place? Do we really seek it? Do we believe it's the desire of a loving God's heart to see us be wretched and mourn and weep? It says it there, but... And yeah, it's definitely true, and it's through that that I kind of came to what I would speak on today. It was a couple of weeks ago that I was really struggling with the the prospect of doing this talk. There was so much in the chapter, and I think I was planning about five sermons in my head. But anyway, I went out for a walk locally just to clear my head, and it came to the point where I was just sat in a field somewhere out on Skull Common, feeling helpless and incapable. But it was then that the calm, reassuring, steady voice of God came to me and said, I've given you a story to tell. I've given you a story to tell. Some of you will know much of it and some of you will know none. But to give a brief overview, in March 2018, my wife Lucy, standing over there with the baby, um, awoke in the small hours of the morning to the experience of me having a horrific seizure in bed. It was horrendous. I was shaking uncontrollably, frothing at the mouth, I fell off the bed, groaning unintelligibly. I, to be fair, was blissfully unaware of what was happening, but Lucy thought I was dying. Following the arrival of paramedics and a trip to hospital that night, I was checked over and discharged the next morning with some medication, with the information that I could no longer drive, and with some follow appointments to go to, but I really had no hint of an answer or an explanation to this thing that had just shaken our lives up. It was several weeks later that I attended hospital um, to what was supposed to be a routine MRI scan of my brain. Shortly into the scan, the body language and uncertainty of the radiographers there made it clear to me um, that something was not as it should be. And in what were some of the most surreal moments of my life, Lucy and I were ushered into a small, cold hospital room by an unwitting on-duty doctor who had the unenviable task of explaining that a large brain tumour had been discovered. It had been revealed by the scan. Anyone who has experienced a similar situation will know it's almost impossible to describe the range of feelings that flood you in that moment. It's a moment, again, where everything else changes. Everything you had been living for, your plans, the hopes you had, the dreams you had dreamt, just flash before your eyes, now shrouded in uncertainty and doubt. In the space of just a few seconds, I realized the utter fragility of life like never before. I realized my total helplessness. There was nothing I could do to change the situation. And as everything else seemed to just fade away, I was aware of my utter dependence on God alone. In that moment, all I knew was that we needed the presence of God more than anything else, and we prayed helpless prayers in our darkest hour. And the words were of little importance, but the, the, the thing that mattered was that our hearts were, one, were in a place of absolute surrender before God. The response to these prayers was absolutely remarkable. 
we found ourselves completely surrounded by his love and his presence. Over the following days, we felt the peace of God that we just couldn't understand. It made no sense after what we'd just been told, and we were completely lost in worship and prayer and hearing God's voice with an incredible clarity like never before. We still had to go through what were some massively tough moments, particularly sharing the news with close friends and family. In particular, telling my mum, who had already lost her husband and my dad to cancer, was crushing for me. And it was 10 days later that we travelled to Adambrooks to meet with uh, Tom, who would be my consultant, and it was, again, not an easy day. We were told, firstly, that the, the brain tumour was incurable. The example given was it's like a plant pot has been shattered into your brain and it's impossible to remove it all. We were told the only viable treatment was surgery as soon as possible to remove as much of the tumour as was safe to do so. The cherry on top was I would need to be awake in the surgery to offer the best chance of any success. In that moment, as you can imagine, we were flawed. In my case, quite literally. Blood began, began to drain from my head and I passed out there and then in the consultation room as Tom rushed to get me a glass of water. I could not cope with the news. When I came round, though, in the kind of casual manner that you might expect of a consultant, he carried on and said, oh, by the way, I'm in touch with the BBC who would like to cover the research we're doing here in, in, a, in a short film. And it became apparent that the film would be based on my story alone. And it was at that moment that of clear word of God that, had spoke, God that he had spoken to me in the previous week came surging back into my mind. The word he had spoken was, I'm giving you a story to tell. At that time, I hadn't realized the full extent of the way that God was intent on reveal, revealing his glory through my life. And while my natural inclination in the moment was, I can't cope with anything else, God. Surely you've given us enough today. The word of God spoken clearly into my life, meditated upon and recalled, meant that we gave God our yes and submitted our story to him. Yet while that word was so encouraging, and it really was, it didn't drive away the despair. On the car journey home, I remember the weight of what we had just been told just settling on us. And through the tears, the desperate prayer that arose out of my moment of greatest weakness was take it away God, take it away, please God, can you heal me, I can't do this, I can't do the surgery, I can't do the film, just get rid of it. But another word that God had given me took on a new and solemn meaning. He had said, I'll meet you in the garden. And I'm not sure whether I could verbalize the prayer in that moment, but I knew that the response of my spirit had to be, God, your will be done. In another quote that I came across by a man called Lee Robeson, it says, the greatest faith is born in the hour of despair. When we can see no hope and no way, then comes the victory. We're going to watch a couple of minutes of the documentary that came out of that our moment of despair, came out of our painful submission of our story to God. Hopefully it will work over on the screen. As you, can, as you can see, that was a moment of total fragility and total surrender. Not to the hospital team, as incredible and wonderful as they are, but my surrender was to God. This film in which we clearly declared our faith in God was not only seen by thousands on a local documentary, Inside Out, but was covered on the six o'clock news and on the 
BBC World Service to an audience of up to 60 million. It's got half a million YouTube views and now is now used by Addenbrooke's to show people who are going to face similar surgeries what they can expect. All I done was give a reluctant yes in that consultation room. But when our story is placed in God's hand, he always turns it into a victory. But the question is, can we sustain that sort of powerful faith that arises in those moments? I'm sure many of us here have faced those kind of moments of special encounter with God. Perhaps in that initial moment when we turn and believe on him and say, Jesus, you're all I need. Maybe in a time of intense trial when all else became meaningless. Perhaps when you've taken a step of faith and nothing could sustain you other than the presence of Jesus. In those moments, it's like the flame burns within us and we're stirred and we want to just tell everyone what God has done for us and we feel like we can change the world in a moment. But as time passes, we move into a new normal. The prayer and the worship perhaps become a little less constant. The struggles, the distractions and the addictions that the world throws at us start to take background in our life. James puts it this way, temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The voice of God starts to be drowned out by the voice of our own desires, by the voice of the world and ultimately by the voice of the devil who wants nothing more than to stall us and drag us away from the story that God has for us. But there's good news, this is not how God wants it to be. He says in uh, Romans 12, 11 to 13 in the message, puts it this way. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. God wants us to constantly live in that place of humble submission, being filled with the fire and the power of the Holy Spirit to live out the story that he has for us. So what is the way past this place of periodic intimacy with God? The place of running out of steam, the place of struggle and weariness getting the better of us. The answer is in Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as we read the gospel accounts of Jesus, it reveals the life of a man who lived in constant submission to the will of God. He remained committed to his servanthood and to his purpose in every moment of his life. He was a man that was obsessed with God. He was obsessed with prayer and entirely obsessed with his father. And I want to spend a few minutes landing our talk, looking at what I believe is one of the richest passages in scripture and gives us an incredible picture of perfect submission to which no other can compare. In the final hours before Jesus' arrest, trial and crucifixion, we find him taking his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where he had often prayed. We read of Jesus himself reaching that point of deepest despair. As the NIV puts it, Jesus says to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with grief to the point of death. He faced death first in this garden as he grasped that everything he loved in the world was turning away. The disciples he loved would abandon him. The crowds would turn on him and call for his crucifixion. And the most extreme physical torture and the most agonizing of deaths awaited him. Above all else, the weight of every human sin from the Garden of Eden right to the end of time 
was pressing on his back, crushing him with grief and forcing him to the floor, knowing that he must yet face the greatest agony of separation from the eternal joy of relationship with his father and the spirit. In his place of despair, anxiety and grief, he cries out, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. What a model that is for our prayers. The full force of his humanity splayed out before God in a desperate cry of honesty and vulnerability to an audience of one. Please, Father, not this way. Surely all our prayers should stand on this as the bedrock. Even in that moment, his, his submission to his Father's will was so absolute that he follows it with the words, yet, not as I will, but as you will. And in a wonderful detail in Luke's account of the event, it is added that at this moment, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. His father heard him now through his agony, just as he always had, and heaven responded. I'm intrigued as to exactly what the angel would have done in that time, but we're not not told. But it seems one way or another that Jesus was given his answer. This is the only way. But you'll make it. You've already made it. All of heaven is with you. We're on our knees right now, bringing you praise and glory and adoration for what you have done. Perhaps his face was lifted from the floor, enough to see his closest friends, Peter, James and John, a stone's throw away, sleeping. His love for them surged through him again, as he knew that they were entirely lost without what he was about to do. Perhaps in that moment he saw you and he saw me, the church that would be birthed longing and desperate for a saviour that could only be him. It was all for love. The circumstance didn't change, but the prayer did. In Matthew's account, we find a distinction between, between the prayers. It changes dramatically from, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, to, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus' line of prayer moves from, please God, there must be another way, to, if I have to do it, let it be your way. Give me the strength to see it through. Jesus' despair didn't disappear at that point at all. And perhaps it got um, even worse as he um, is restored to the knowledge of what he must go through, as the certainty of death then surrounded him in a greater way. Luke, the doctor, records a rare medical occurrence. It says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In the passages that follow, we witness the astonishing effect of the power of these raw, uncensored prayers sustained through total brokenness. Jesus arises boldly, determined, full of power. And we read in John that as he stands to face the soldiers that are seeking to arrest and kill him, he proclaims, I am he, and they draw back and fall to the ground. He proceeds through the rest of this journey to the cross in full control, driven forward by the strengthening power of God, with his mind set only on the purpose that God had given him. Out of his place of crushing despair, he brings us the most glorious eternal victory, one that brings salvation, one that brings us freedom, one that takes away the power of the world, and one that means that even death itself is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. Perhaps the greatest challenge to me, though, is found in some of Jesus' final words to his disciples. 
See, each of the three times that Jesus went on alone to pray, his plea to his disciples was this, stay awake, be alert, join with me in praying that you won't come into the time of trial. And you can only imagine his pain each time as he returned from his own place of desperation where his body was poured out almost to death to find that his closest friends couldn't even stay awake. They weren't up to the call. But amazingly, as Jesus returns back for the third time, despite them sleeping once again, despite being aware that moments later they would abandon him and run away, knowing that Peter would deny even knowing him, Jesus says these beautiful words of love and of grace. The hour is at hand. Get up. Let us be going. Let us be going. He could have given up on them there and then and said, it's all right, I've got it from here. You're no use. But he says, I'm going to do the work of salvation. I'm going to win this battle, but I intend to do it with you at my side. Will you stand up? Will you face the struggle? Will you come with me to fight? And I believe these words of Jesus are for us today. He sees our struggles, he's faced our grief, he knows our failings, and he realizes that we are broken vessels. We can't do anything on our own, but he still wants us with him more than anything. The truth is today, it's all his story. It's all about Jesus, but it's a story written on the hearts and minds of people who will say yes to God. His call always remains, and the call is hard. But it is the only way to live a life in the exhilarating, power-filled abundance that God has for us today. It's the only way to leave behind the life of struggle, of half-heartedness and mediocrity, and move into a life flourishing, full of adventure, full of faith. His script for our life is the only one worth following. Nothing will compare to it. Will you hear the call of Jesus today and give your everything to his story? Will your response to Jesus be, I'm all in? We're going to go into a final song and leave a bit of time for response to what God has said this morning. It's a song actually that I didn't really know, but it's a song that God gave to me in that time when I was kind of on my knees struggling to bring this talk together. Um, But yeah, I would encourage you If God's spoken to you, don't wait. Later in the chapter, James says, life is a mist. Here one day, gone the next. We had some tragic news um, a couple of days ago where um, of a boy who's in my nephew's preschools. Yeah, he goes to my nephew's preschool. But both of his parents were killed suddenly in a car crash. Their story was finished. None of us really know how long we've got. So if you're here today and have never given your life to Jesus, I say it again as Graham did, Do it today. It's it's an incomparable joy. Nothing will compare to it. Maybe you're here today and you know him and love him, but the world's getting the better of you. The news of war, political instability, and the struggle to make enough money is pulling you down. Lay it down today. There's more than enough grace in Jesus, and he has something so much better for you today. Maybe you know that God's calling you to a new chapter in your story, a step of faith that feels too big, too impossible, so you're delaying it. But be assured it's his work. Rise up and believe he can do it today. And if you'd like someone to pray to you, as pray for you, as has been said, there's people at the front who would love to, that there's people all around you in the room that love Jesus and would be honored to pray with you. The biggest victories always start with prayer.